Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're talking the final season of HBO's The Leftovers with the show creator himself, Damon Lindelof. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Gazelle and Matt. Hello. Hello, Jen, who is in studio with us today. I know, I'm real and everything. <laughs> uh, so I think The Leftovers is a shared favorite of all three of ours. Yes. Which mm-hmm. is always nice when we all love a show. And, you know, I think it's a show we would all recommend to others as a show they should watch, especially considering it's it's a bit underrated for how great it is. So we thought we would kick off this podcast talking about other shows that we consider underrated and that we think you guys should check out. So what is another show that you think could use a little more love? Currently on the air? Does not have to be, I don't think. Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll jump in and say uh, Halt and Catch Fire on mm. AMC which has one more season in it, a fourth and final season. And this is a show about, you know, the dawn of the computer era in the 1980s. And I think the first season was a little bit difficult to get through, but then I feel like it really hit its stride in the second season and the interpersonal dynamics between the characters and especially the women on the show, Donna and Cameron, just became so much more interesting to me. And I feel like... uh, with the exception of The Walking Dead and Better Call Saul, I feel like every AMC show now is like this pretty solid show that nobody's paying attention to. Uh, and and that's, I think, one of the stronger examples of that. Um, Humans is another one, too. Yes. But um, but yeah, A Halt and Catch Fire immediately comes to my mind. That's a great one. I mean, it is. What do you think is about it that hasn't allowed it to quite take off? I don't know. I I. I I, I do think it was hard to get into the first season and maybe yeah. some people like were willing to give it a try. And at that point it was getting, I think, a madman push a little bit. Right. Because um, madman was. was so on. That was a lot of the that that was a lot of my resistance to it was that it was just a little too like Don Draper goes to goes to Silicon Valley and, and Silicon Prairie. Right. And the, the, right. Uh, the title of the show too, I think. Can yeah, be, yeah, you that know, it's been not an the, issue. It's not the best, most catchy. It's hard to know what it means, although I guess it's a it's a reference to something techie. It is. It is. <laughs> and I could explain it, but I can't remember what it means now. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, they did sort of pitch it and it felt like it was going to be really centered around Lee Pace and even more kind of was in the first season. But yeah. as they spread it out and it became more of an ensemble piece. And like I said before, more equally spread between the four principles, I, I found the show to become more and more interesting. Mm. So my pick is Adventure Time. Which, oh, nice. Yes. yes which is yes. returning for its eighth season later this month. And, you know, I don't know, maybe underrated isn't the right word, but I think a lot of people misjudge it because it's a cartoon and you might yeah. think it's a kid's show. Mm-hmm. And it's actually probably more suited for adults in a lot of ways, just in terms of its thematic interest and kind of its sense of humor. I would kind of describe it as more of like a dark comedy and kind of lingers in these moments of happiness and sadness in this way that I find very powerful. I find myself very, very moved by, you know, the Ice King, who is the, the evil villain of the show, but he's one of the most devastatingly lonely characters I've ever seen. That, and he's actually the one that I probably relate to the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it just has these very surreal interludes. And the songs are amazing, which are also a lot of them are written by the creator Pendleton Ward. 
And it's only 10 minutes per episode. So it's a great kind of it's a great show to, you know, whether you want to binge it or you want to kind of insert episodes in between your heavier binges. It's kind of a, a great palate cleanser as well, yeah. if you will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that would be my choice. My pick would either be another animated show, uh, Samurai Jack, oh, which I've written about. I think I just think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful work of art. And and uh, I think the, you know, talk about a show where the title dooms it. I mean, you hear it's like Samurai, okay, Jack. You put the two things, the Samurai Jack, really? What is this? Is this a joke? It sounds like it's a joke. And uh, people, a lot of people wouldn't watch a, a show with Samurai in the title anyway, and you add Jack to it and forget it. And also it's a cartoon. And then I think there may be some... Uh, some cognitive dissonance even when you're watching it because it's not it's the the title sounds like a joke but the show's not a joke like the show is like a it's like a fable it's like a fable or you know it looks like a series of woodcuts come to life and the tone of it is although there's a lot of humor on the show there are times when it's not funny at all where it's kind of like an epic uh, narrative it's like you know david versus goliath or something like that and uh, you know the or the the, the labors of hercules Along those lines, it's mythological, and uh, but it's great. I just love it. I just love to look at it and listen to it. And the other show I mentioned would mention, and I won't go into detail because I don't want to bore people with it because I talk about it so much. Is the Young Pope? Mm-hmm. Oh, the Young yes. Pope. I'm still running around telling people, "Have you seen the Young Pope? You should watch <laughs> the Young Pope. It's great." It's the Young Pope. It's like people cross the street to avoid me now. It's like, oh, it's Matt. He's going to talk about the Young Pope. Let's everybody, <laughs> everybody run, <laughs> everybody run away. I, ha- I love this image of you as like a New York City town crier running through the streets. Young Pope, have you seen the Young Pope? Hey, Young Pope, <laughs> well, anybody? <laughs> my friend Steve, my friend Stephen is even worse. My friend Stephen is actually, I've actually told him. It's like we're a couple of junkies, like, like, and I'm trying to give him advice on how to how to hide his habit. It's like, can you like wait like either fifteen to twenty minutes into a conversation before bringing up the Young Pope, or just maybe not bring it up? <laughs> <laughs> can do that because he literally is like yeah steven nice to meet you and have you seen the young pope oh my god let me tell you about the oh, it's the greatest show well speaking of the young pope i'm super excited about hbo's next import from italy which is going to be an adaptation of the elena ferrante yeah neapolitan series which is uh, one of my favorite reads recently so excellent. Excellent. yes a lot to look forward to that is this week's prompt listeners if you would like to weigh in or suggest a prompt for a future week, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Next up, we're joined by Damon Lindelof. We'll be right back. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is a real pleasure. Uh, The pleasure is all mine. it's exciting to uh, talk to you guys. As obviously, I'm a, 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 a can I say fan, huge listener, a devotee, a uh, <laughs> etc. You, you need to come up with a, a cute name for your fandom. <laughs> we can call you first time caller, long time listener. How about that? Yeah, exactly. I'll take this answer off the air, please. <laughs> well, I wanted to start by asking you about the letter that you sent uh, to critics along with the leftover screeners in which you very politely asked us not to reveal spoilers, in a, but in a nice, you know, non-demanding way. And uh, one of the things you wrote in the letter was, I've never sent out this many episodes in advance and I feel scared and I'm trying to mitigate that fear by controlling things. But the way I'm controlling them is by trying to convince you that I'm OK with not controlling them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously, whenever you... 
Yeah, well, but it's so uh, good. Uh, but yeah. whenever you create anything, you or anybody, obviously there's a certain level of anxiety when you're you're handing it over to other people. But did you feel a greater sense of that anxiety with because there were so many of these episodes and because it's the last season? Uh, yes, um, definitely an, an exponential rise in anxiety. I mean, uh, this is the the first time in the in I guess the ten years that I've been making television. You know, uh, as a showrunner slash co creator, that we have finished the show so far in advance of the show being on. So with Lost, it was like you you know we'd be three or four episodes in when the show started airing. Leftover seasons one and seasons two, we would probably be shooting maybe like the last two episodes when it would start when it would start airing. In this case, we finished shooting the show back in uh, in September, finished oh, wow. editing the show in January, and now it's going to be on in the middle of April. So I just January and February were great months for me because I was just like la di da reading books, catching up on stuff, like trying just not to even think about it. And then I was like, oh, my God, people are actually going to see this thing we made now. And how are they going to absorb it? And so we've never been in a position before to really send out more than three episodes tops because that's the number that were complete uh, before a season started airing. But, you know, we're now basically sitting on all eight episodes of the final season. And it was a fairly excruciating decision to figure out how many to kind of put in advance of, uh, of, of the show premiere. How did you decide on, on seven? I listened to people who are much smarter than I. Um, <laughs> it was actually, uh, we, we were on the phone, uh, Mimi Leader and uh, uh, Tom Parada, Tom Speziali, myself, and Justin Thoreau was also on the call with, uh, with basically HBO um, publicity and marketing, and they're incredible at what they do. And we were just sort of weighing the pros and cons of, should we send three, should we send four, and should we send all eight? And Thoreau was the one who said we should just send seven. We should we should hold the finale back, but we should give them as much of of what we've done as possible. We have nothing to hide, um, <laughs> and people will experience it. Uh, though though he was probably naked when he said that. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's how I always imagine him. Um, and uh, and you could just sort of hear the collective nod. That uh, he spoke very passionately, and it was sort of like, "Yes, we're we're going with the Thoreau plan because that way." If it goes, How do you say no goes, to a naked Thoreau? <laughs> you know what? How that's that sounds like that's poetry, right there. I think, that, I think that How should do be you say uh, no to a naked Thoreau. That should be on the posters. I think it is yeah. on the posters, actually. Well, well, was it's, I just? It's, it's definitely implied on the poster. <laughs> was I just imagining it, or does he have more scenes with his clothes off this season? Uh, I can't. I can't really speak to what you uh, imagine. Um, it's. It's. Uh, um, look, when you're when you're dealing with a, a physique like like his, I feel like it's actually um, you know insulting to Justin well, for for him to not have his clothes. It's off a work of art. But, yes. But we did. You know, uh, all all kidding aside, I you know I do feel like um, if if I can put on my artsy fartsy hat, which uh, has a feather in it. Um, the the idea that when when a character is going to be naked, it actually is supposed to demonstrate some le- level of vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, and we wanted to really demonstrate um, Kevin Garvey as a very vulnerable character, particularly as we move into the end game. So I was like, the more vulnerable he feels, the more naked he should be, and he's feeling awfully vulnerable this year. So 
probably I, I that would be a good exercise. I think probably we should all do this. Just break out the stopwatch, go just do a quick binge of the first two seasons and get some accurate measurements yes. of how, how naked he has been. <laughs> Vulture, Vulture will get right on that, I assure you. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Was it also, I'm, I felt like this season was a little bit funnier. Was that an intentional choice? Season three? Season three, yeah. It feels like yeah. there's a little bit more of a kind of, like the show is kind of poking fun at, at itself in some ways. Well, I, I definitely think that was intentional. One of the things about season one that is that I was very resolute at living in the space of there can be no humor on this show. This show is all about despair and depression and the sudden departure happened and that has wrecked, you know, wrecked families like Lori is in the guilty remnant and, um, and Matt Jameson has lost his church and there is no space for comedy here. And, uh, and I just couldn't, couldn't hear it uh, coming from the other writers, particularly Tom Parada, uh, who is an incredibly funny guy. And there was a lot of humor in the book that we were adapting. And then over the course of season one, as we got into the end of season one and certainly into season two, started realizing that there was a lot much, much uh, a greater bandwidth for what because I completely and totally and I'm unable to admit that I was wrong. I would be like, okay, there's no room for comedy, but maybe absurdity. And those are mm -hmm. two different things. And now let me give you a, a, a lecture about how absurdity is different than comedy. But <laughs> um, it, by, by the time we got to season three, I think that there was a lot of laughter in the writer's room. Um, and we started just thinking like, hey, if we're laughing at this, maybe that maybe we should put that in the show too and we just started getting uh tickled by uh ideas that were a little bit more uh further out there and i think part of the fun was that the characters aren't really in on the joke um and then and then we started kind of developing this idea that wouldn't it be great if we could construct episodes where for where we imagined imaginary dialogue between someone who had seen the episode and someone who had never seen The Leftovers, and the person who's seen the episode just says, here's what happened on The Leftovers last night, and the person that they're talking to is like, that is the stupidest thing that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and, um, and we're like, and now our job is to make that person who has never seen it watch the episode and realize that it's not as stupid as they thought it was. In fact, I did, I, I did have that feeling at several points during season three when other characters are reminding, one character is reminding another character of something that happened to them. And the way they're describing it was funny. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just the just the act of describing it because it is like it's not the sort of thing that happens every day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I talked to my wife about the sort of emotional. She doesn't want to be spoiled on the show. She wants to just watch the episodes. But if something intense is happening in the writing of the show or in the writer's room or where we're trying to figure something out and we're going down a blind alley and we're frustrated, but it required me basically telling her some of the larger storylines of the season and i was like oh we're doing this thing with nora etc 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 and she just looked at me and she was like you're not really doing that are you and i was like oh my god that conversation is now happening between me and my wife and i'm like trust me i think it can be good it can be trust me um and she's now fortunately seen the first two episodes and she's like okay that was much better than you described uh, which is a, a, a functioning metaphor for life i think my life when when season two ended, as as I recall, you you didn't necessarily know that you were going to have a season three. So, can you talk about when when you kind of figured out what the general arc for this season was going to be? Like, 
how that all came came together. And also, wh- uh, when did you hear that you were going to get a season three, and why did they decide to do it? Well, Matt, what what was the day that you published that article that said there, sh- and you made a very compelling case for why there should be a third season of The Leftovers? Because two hours after that uh, that article went up, I got the call. Are you wow. kidding me? So, <laughs> so I'm not kidding you. Is it coincidence? Who knows? But I, uh, you, you never, I didn't know about this. Yeah, as you guys. Uh, M- Margaret Lyons, who was who was at, at Vulture at the time, she wrote a piece like maybe a couple of days ahead of yours or a week ahead of yours. That was basically like the leftover season two was great, and that should be all. Right? Like, we had both. We had both pieces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I amazing. actually wrote her a letter and going, "What the fuck are you trying to do? <laughs> this is a good and show." When we, <laughs> and when we read that, it made such a compelling argument, and Margaret's such a great uh, critic and and writer about television that I was like, "Oh man, like." She makes a very uh, she makes a very compelling case here, and then Matt's Matt's piece came out, and um, and then we got the pickup. But uh, uh, what I will say is that we designed the second season uh, to function kind of as a novel, and I know that there's a lot of discussion right now out there in the the um, in the culture sphere about the ten hour movie or um, uh, or the seventy hour movie or or whatever it is but the but the thing about a novel because we adapted the first season from tom 's novel when I read it, and when Tom and I got together for the first time, I said, "Look, I know that the first at the pilot is going to be hero's day, and that the the final scene of the finale of season one is going to be Nora holding that baby in her arms, saying, "Look what I found, which was the with the last sentence in tom 's novel um, and we 'll figure out what happens in between those 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 two goalposts but that that feels like such a satisfying ending. So when we dove into season two, we designed it the same way, which was, uh, A, obviously the show is not a, a, fin- a phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination, so season two might be the last season. So we should design it in a way that it feels like it's complete. But at the same time, um, we can lay seeds for things that we're thinking about doing if there were potentially a third season. But as we got to the end of season two, and not just because Margaret wrote what she wrote, but many of, of your guys' peers and a lot of our own were saying, I'm actually cool with it ending right here. That made us realize that we were much closer to the end than we were to the beginning. And I think the real there were two kind of lingering feelings that we had as a, as a storytelling collective, which was, it's great that they're all in the room together and they're all reunited, but, you know, Kevin and Nora are not really in a place yet where things are going to be okay between them because Nora hasn't done whatever she needs to do to get well, to be healed. And more importantly, Kevin came back to life multiple times. He had this crazy uh, journey to uh, a- another realm or into the depths of his own psyche, depending on which way you look at it. But there's got to be a consequence for dying and coming back to life. Um, as much as we love Game of Thrones, that, that's the kind of show that can say, yep, Jon Snow was dead, and now he's alive again, and there's White Walkers coming, and let's get on with it. Um, but for The Leftovers, dealing with the emotional consequences for Kevin and the people around Kevin in terms of saying, you may want to get back to things that the way they were, but we want to talk about the fact that you were resurrected and contextualize this in the grander scheme of whatever our belief systems are. And those ideas were just like the low-hanging fruit that became the, you know, the, the kind of dominant con- story constructs for the final season of the show. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Kevin and Nora's relationship and just how you view it, because it's it definitely complicates in season three, I would say. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like um, ultimately this is, you know, a, a, a little bit corny, but I, I've never had any issues with corny, but and not to overly sim, uh, simplify a very complicated show, but this is really just a love story. Um, and uh, between Kevin and Nora in particular, that's where we kind of wanted to put our, um, you know, uh, push our story chips into the middle of the love table. And, and I think that um, they skipped all the important things that you need to do to be in a, you know, in a healthy relationship. They have chemistry. They, they have the thing that makes you fall in love with someone. But once you have those things in order to actually stay in a lasting uh, partnership, you have to basically expose some wounds and not be afraid to fight and, and then also explore your own trauma, both the trauma that you um, suffered prior to getting together with this other person and the trauma that you're suffering as a result of being together with this other person. And Nora has just basically, you know, this nuclear bomb went off in her emotional life and that as a result of losing her family and not only losing her children, but her husband who she learns cheated on her uh, uh, prior to him disappearing, that would create a lot of trauma for her. And so it's not, it's not as simple as, oh, this is a hot cop and I really like him and he's cool and he goes running into burning buildings and saves his daughter and, oh, now here's a baby on the porch. Let's make a family together. Um, wouldn't it be great if we lived in that world? Uh, unfortunately, we don't. And Nora and Kevin tend to avoid these kind of more painful conversations about, you know, what it would take for them to trust one another and be in an intimate uh, relationship with one another. Um, and this final season would be, basically wants to dramatize, here's all the things that we've been feeling but haven't said to each other, and we've been scared to say them because it may mean detonating the relationship. We're scared to have that fight because that fight is when we may nev never recover from. So first they're kind of avoiding it, then they're directly confronting it, and then we then we'll ultimately determine whether these two people even should be together. Um, but I, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm over talking it, but that, that's, that, that's what the thinking was. You mentioned they, you know, have this intense physical chemistry. And I did notice this season how it feels like they're a little, there are not a lot of sex scenes, but you definitely see them kind of being physical with each other more than we have before. And just in little ways where they have this great kind of, um, surface level rapport, and but they're not really digging deep, just kind of like what you were saying, which yeah, I mean, it's the romance novel. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just sort of like um, and but when you but at least it was in our intention in the storytelling that when you look at those scenes when they have sex or they use in you know they they are kissing one another or being intimate, the, those scenes are always preceded by them starting to talk about the thing that they should be talking about, and just as it starts to get uncomfortable, they start having sex. Right. Because um, it's like, let's just do this instead. <laughs> and even when they're just being cute and kissy, you're like, why is the camera lingering on Nora's cast? What is under that thing? Um, you know, so they're, uh, it, you know, it it wouldn't work for the show if it was just sex. It has to be, you know, it, there has to be a level of kind of uh, danger involved there too. But danger is sexy, or at least at least it, it is if it involves Justin Thoreau and Carrie Coon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, two of the sexiest people alive. <laughs> they you, are. Uh, you, the 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 theme music to the second season had the refrain "Let the mystery be," and. Uh, You've talked about this before, but this idea of leaving certain things up to the interpretation of the audience. However, 
Um, you also sort of corrected the impression that I had that uh, you didn't that there that there it wasn't you know that you basically you had a rhyme or reason. You made it sound like you and the and the people in the writers' room you had the answers, but you were deciding not to necessarily share all of those explanations and answers with the audience. Do I have that right? That that's cer- yeah well uh, that's that's certainly accurate yeah that's so that's you know why things happen like you know basically you know you're God right you know why <laughs> things happen you know why you're doing things in this God, universe you and the other writers yeah. but you're not <laughs> share you're not sharing it with the audience like if the audience you know if the audience were to say like why did this happen why did that happen you would say I can't tell you. Um, I guess I, you know, I, I try to find a more artful way of saying, uh, I can't tell you and that, and, and I wouldn't say, well, what do you think? Which I feel is a co- uh, is a frustrating cop out. But I always hate I that when I, people say that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you I, think? The worst. <laughs> what am I, yeah, therapy? I guess, yeah. <laughs> I, you are in therapy. That's, that's what watching television is. But I, I will say, I will say this, which is, I believe that the audience can tell when you don't know. You know, so the the context of you have to listen to a podcast where Parada or I or the other writers basically say, we know we've just chosen not to tell you. If you need to listen to that podcast in order to verify your suspicion, then we've done something wrong. The storyteller, the storytelling itself is either confident or it's not confident. You either know or you don't know, and the audience can just smell. They can just sense it. We are, you know, we are animals with instinctive um, um, sensibilities about when we're being uh, lied to. So like, let's just take, let's just take the point of Carlton and I saying until we are blue in the face, we, you know, we have all the answers, all the answers are going to be satisfying to you. Um, have, have faith in the process. Uh, we wouldn't have had to do that constantly if, if the storytelling was un, unwinding in a way that it felt like we knew everything as we were doing it. Unfortunately, you know, when you're doing 24, 25 episodes of a broadcast drama a year, it's it's almost impossible to focus too much on what's next, and you have to focus on what's now. Um, and particularly with the show that ha- was open ended for the for the first seventy episodes, um, certainly roads were traveled that never should have been traveled in the first place, and they, they created consequence and debt. But there is no excuse if there's only going to be three seasons and twenty eight episodes of a show, and you have like two months in between seasons to just gather the writers and talk about what your intention is. There is no excuse to not know the answers to those questions. And if you're deciding not to answer them and not tell them, you know, there's a way to construct your story that doesn't frustrate the audience in the process of watching it. At least that's the that's the thinking. We'll see what happens. Well, Mm. so what you're talking about, Damon, raises a question for me, which is to what extent did your work on the Lost finale, to what extent were you reflecting on that as you worked on this, both in terms of what you were just saying, like narrative approach, but even as I was watching these episodes, I felt like there were very sly callbacks to things from Lost, uh, you know, that weren't distracting. But if you knew Lost well, you you understood that, that there was a, a connective tissue there. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Lost was a huge part of my life, not just for the time period that I was making it, but, you know, it was the, you know, it was the most personal story that I've ever told, you know, prior to The Leftovers. And obviously, I was a part of an incredible 
uh, team of uh, of storytellers, and so they they were a part of it too. But I can only answer the the question as you've directed it at me, and I and I kind of feel like the way that the what the show was and what the show is about. But then, in particular, the conversation about Lost is so dominated by the way that it ended. Um, it's almost impossible. To, I think it is impossible to talk about Lost without talking about the ending of Lost. Um, and uh, that's just what the pop culture conversation is. And um, and I think that that's fair. And I, I understand that I'll be talking about it for, for as, as long as I'm doing this for a living. That said, the only commonality between Lost and The Leftovers is me. And so while I am a co-creator of both shows, there were so many other critical, important, influential, creative voices that influenced what The Leftovers was. First and foremost, Parada, who wrote the book on which it was based, and who was in the writer's room for all three seasons and penned many of the scripts. And so, you know, those people, I, I, I feel like I feel duty-bound to insulate them from whatever uh, baggage I'm bringing from Lost. But at the same time, I also want to celebrate Lost because whatever you know, divisiveness or polarization exists around that show. I just have an immense amount of positive feeling towards it. None of that, ex- none of those feelings exist for me. I'm not conflicted about Lost. I'm just so happy that it exists and that I got to make it. And, you know, um, it was an incredibly important thing in my life. But, and so that kind of storytelling, the things that I'm interested in and what it's like to be human and what happens when you die and, you know, what are, what are judgment mechanisms? Should we hand them off to higher powers or should we let others judge us or should we judge ourselves? Those are always going to be the things that I want to write about. But as it pertains to the ending, I just kind of feel like my hope is that the conversation about the leftovers is not dominated by how the leftovers ended. It's fair that that's what happened with Lost because it was a different construct. It was a mystery construct. Uh, There is mystery in the leftovers, but for people who are watching the leftovers like a puzzle box show or, or, you know, coming up with theories or thinking that I I would say, I don't know how many episodes you guys have seen as, as of the conversation we're having right now, but I don't think there are like, there, there may be surprises in terms of like, oh, I, I wasn't expecting them to go there, but I don't think there are twists no, or yeah. tricks or, no. oh my God, this, char- this character was, you know, was a figment of someone else's imagination right. or they were doing nonlinear storytelling without us realizing it. It's, fa- it's a fairly straightforward approach. So, but Lost invited all those things and therefore you live by the sword, die by the sword. In The Leftovers, it definitely feels like, you know, you're you're getting different people's perspectives on this occurrence. So it's not like giving you one answer. It's giving you lots of possible views on what could have happened. Well, and that was and that's, I, that's sort of similar to what I was going to say, which is that also in on top of what you say, Gazelle, the I think from the very beginning, the show has has, you know, tacitly and sometimes explicitly said, uh, we don't know why this happened. Right, and that's and, part right. of what's driving the show. Yeah, and you this... say, and if you say that often enough, I think the audience has to start believing you. And I let's hope, Matt. Well, I, well, I do. I'll put, there I'll put are you in touch with some people. Yeah. Here's the thing I want to say though. <laughs> I, I I bring that to it because, as you probably know, Damon, like I watch any show. I can watch children's programming. I'm like, you know, this reminds me of Lost in some way. <laughs> so I, I tend to see these connections uh, in in almost anything I look at. But The Leftovers is a very different show. But in terms of some of the themes, as you just you know explained, I, I think there is. It's 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 similar subject matter dealt with in a in a different way. 
And I, 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 would, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I, and let me just say one sure, other thing please. real quick, which is just circling back to what you guys were talking about earlier in terms of the way that the second season ended, which was if people were saying, I'm okay with it ending here, like at the end of season two, with that level of resolution, that, that, was, that was very telling for us, I think, as writers, where it's like, oh, if, we were, if they were cool with us ending there, then they don't actually need to know the answers, certainly to, to some of these, um, you know, it, there's a difference between the mysteries of life and the, and the mysteries of the narrative. And if they feel like they got a satisfying conclusion to, you know, where did the three girls disappear to and why, you know, uh, what, what was really happening in the Murphy house, uh, et cetera, they're cool with it. And it's like it, season two ended and nobody was like, I need a broader, you know, cosmological explanation for how Kevin was able to die and come back to life. <laughs> they don't need that. Then let's not give it right. to them. <laughs> there, there was one moment in this season where... Just visually, I was I was reminded of Lost, and it's the way season five opens on that submarine took me right back to the opener of season two of Lost, where we first uh-huh. meet Desmond. And I was curious sure. if that was intentional, because it was such a like that's one of my favorite Lost episodes ever. And oh, thanks. Yeah, it just um, just curious about that. Yeah, I I think there is you know there is a lot of intention and homage to lost in the body of the leftovers because it would have been a huge mistake to basically avoid it it's sort of like they're not meant to be sort of like cute little winks to you know oh i want i want to refer b- back to my past work but the reality is is you know to to essentially say we're going to end the final season of the leftovers in australia without being cognitive of the fact that that's where lost began um and that we did an episode, probably one of the most memorable episodes of Lost was its its second episode, Walkabout, um, uh, which which involves John Locke, and that we're we're actually going and exploring the outback through an, through another character who's basically looking for meaning and understanding in his life. It's impossible to not have those conversations in the writers' room. Almost all the writers have seen Lost, um, and and say like, okay, you know that thing exists, and like. What's the line between, you know, homage slash wink and just sort of wanton cutesiness or self, self-referential, um, you know, kind of fart smelling to use the uh, South Park <laughs> vernacular. Um, and let's try to stay on the right side of that line. Um, I don't want to spoil it too much since uh, listeners may not have gotten to this point when they're listening to this podcast, but Perfect Strangers uh, <laughs> comes up it has come up before on the leftovers it comes up again this season why perfect strangers other than you know obviously balky and the whole show was delightful but but why perfect strangers so uh we had a, a writer producer in season one of the leftovers and one of the first things that we did when we got together was we wanted to talk about the world you know a post-departure world and you know and did world building so what does this world look like what kind of products are being sold and and but but most importantly, who are the celebrities who have departed? Uh, and uh, out of that conversation, we took certain things from Tom's book, which was he had this great idea in the book that uh, like a disproportionate amount of celebrity chefs departed. So like, you know, Guy Fieri and Anthony Bourdain and, you know, 
uh, Wolfgang Puck. All, like, it's just like, what is it about being a celebrity chef? And then, um, and then we picked some <laughs> other random celebrities like Shaquille O'Neal and, um, and of course, Gary Busey, who also <laughs> makes a triumphant return in season three. Um, I thought it was but, Trump uh, at first. <laughs> I know. It's very Trump-esque. We, yeah, we should be so lucky. But, um, <laughs> but what, what happened was that uh, Jackie Hoyt said, what if the entire cast, the entire cast of Perfect Strangers disappeared, departed? <laughs> and we just all, cra- we all cracked up. And we were like, that's going in the show. And, um, and in fact, Scott Glenn, Kevin Sr.'s character, relays that nugget of trivia to, to Kevin in the first scene when he goes to visit his dad in the mental institution, an episode of Perfect Strangers is on. Right. And Sr. basically says they all, they all departed. And we just kind of, like, love that idea. And then in the second season of the show, I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure it was Jackie again. Um, we were talking about the idea of how can we foreshadow the idea that the three girls staged their own departure, that they faked it? How can we give the audience a chance at guessing it? Um, so that it doesn't feel like it's arbitrary when we mm. reveal it. And there should be like some other celebrity who faked their own departure. And if we put that in the first episode, it will feel like it's fair, like that we, that we created a, a bedrock for this phenomenon to occur. And Jackie was like, Mark Lynn Baker's in Mexico. <laughs> 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 yes, Marklin Baker's in Mexico. Now all I have to do is actually call Marklin Baker and ask him if he will appear in four seconds of the leftovers um, to to do that to kind of keep this in joke running. And I got, I got his uh, email address and reached out to him, and it turned out that he had seen the first season of the show, and he was like, "I'm I'll, I'll see you in Austin." So. Uh, he came down and shot what um, what amounted to be a five second cameo in season two, and then um, and then in, in the spirit of uh, comedy comes in threes, uh, it felt like is there anything to do with the Perfect Strangers idea? And we were really struggling with something in the final season of the show, which was um, Nora Durst, fraud investigator, is going to be presented with the existence of this very ridiculous idea, and the ridiculous idea is that there is a a gadget or a gizmo, you know, uh, we called it the Brundlefly vaporizer uh, based on the movie The Fly, that that could potentially transport you to where all the departed people went um, and so that she could be reunited with her family. And this idea was so absurd and so ridiculous and so obviously a con that that we were like, there's no way on God's green earth that the, that the audience is going to swallow this pill, let alone Nora. So how do we present this in a way that it starts off really silly, but then once you've actually heard it, you go like, huh, I only like 80% believe that it's phony now. And then yeah. the answer went, the, pre, the person presenting the idea had to be more absurd than the idea itself. And that's when it was like, I still have Mark Lynn Baker's email address. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I uh, wrote him an email and said, it's not going to be a cameo this time. It's going to be a huge scene. And are you game? And he said, I'll see you in Austin. So, uh, you know, and then once he said yes, then it was like, I, I think cycling back to your initial question, which is like perfect strangers. Is there any better title for like one of the grander thematic ideas that underlines the Kevin and Nora of it all? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it just felt like it was on theme. And it also, because Kevin senior 
basically re-enters, you know, the stage at the end of that episode that starts with the Perfect Strangers theme song, and and Kevin Senior was the <laughs> one who that? introduced, and Kevin Senior was the one who introduced us to the idea in the first place. It feels earned now. It feels like it's not an arbitrary cutesy thing we're doing. It feels like it's locking into the larger narrative of the puzzle we're trying to put together, even though we don't know what the picture on the front of the box looks like quite yet. And uh, so that was the, that was the thinking. Well, I was going to ask, you know, just in terms of the actors on this show, like how much that determines the types of stories that you're writing for them. For example, you have someone like Carrie Coon, who's an incredible actress, and she she's you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like the end, the the end of the first episode this season. You know, we end on a note where she it feels like she's kind of a driving force of the season in certain ways. Was she always in your mind a character who was going to be such a prominent character or did having someone like Carrie Coon and just someone who's able to communicate so much? Did that kind of determine how much you um, you expanded a role like that, for example? The answer is both. I mean, in, in Tom's book, uh, the two main characters are Kevin and Nora. And they, in, in the novel, they're li- living very separate existences, but they do come to come together at the end. And we took a, you know, we took a slightly, you know, alternate reality path through our first season, but basically landed on the same place, which is these two, these two people are going to be together. But I think that once, you know, uh, Carrie is only really in one scene of the, uh, of the pilot, which is the Heroes Day scene, where mm-hmm. she's not really, it's not a scene where you're playing off of another actor. She's giving a speech about uh, having lost her family, and then it gets interrupted by the arrival of the guilty remnant. And when I saw her, when I saw her perform that scene, she did it in the, uh, she did it for her audition, but then again, she, she did it when we were shooting the, the show. I, it suddenly occurred to me, like, what kind of, uh, what kind of a person needs to give this testimonial in such a public way? You know, like, why stand up in front of thousands of people and say that I'm suffering and this is what happened to me and I want you to feel sorry for me? And then Tom started talking about the 9-11 widows who, you know, uh, like 10 years down the line are still can't break free of the gravity of the fact that they're 9-11 widows and they go around and they raise money for amazing causes, but that's their identity now. And so... All of that came from Carrie's performance. That was not in the book, and it wasn't in our minds until we saw what she started doing. And I was like, this woman is suffering incredibly, but when you just interact with her on the street, she seems like she's fine. So what's her secret? Like, if we followed her around for an episode, what would, we, what would, mm-hmm. what would her coping mechanism be? And then the, the outcropping of that conversation was, oh, well, you know, she hires prostitutes to shoot her in the chest while she's wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> um, th- that idea came more from Carrie than it did from us. It wasn't that Carrie Coon pitched it, but there was something in her performance that was just like, it was so together and yet so vulnerable around the edges of that togetherness. And she also seemed like, like explosive. Like I was like, I would not want to be in her crosshairs. Um, uh, like I, I'm, I'm scared of this woman and Carrie Coon in real life is the least scary person ever. She's the loveliest human ever, but in her performance, that, en- that, da- that danger energy, um, was just radiating, radiating off her in waves. And, uh, so we started writing to that, uh, to all of those things. And I think that 
you know, I try not to get too far ahead on scripts, particularly in the first season of the show, because we don't, it, you know, we're, we're not in the off-the-rack suit or, or, or gown business where you make a, a garment and then the actor comes in and they try it on. Uh, that's ne- it's never going to fit them properly. They have to come in, you have to measure, measure them, and then you make the suit. And uh, or or the gown uh, or uh, I don't know why I'm thinking formal wear, but you know there's, there's too many too many garments. But her, uh, you know that that's that's the way to do it. Her her fa- her face, her hair, and particularly her voice. She reminds me a little bit of Sigourney Weaver as Ripley. Hmm. That's interesting. Oh, for sure. See that. It's going to be really interesting this year with with both shows running, with both us and Fargo running mm-hmm. simultaneously. You know the the audience's ability to watch Carrie. I haven't seen any of Fargo. I love Fargo, and I'm so excited that she's going to be on Fargo. But they feel like they're going to be two very different characters. They are. I don't. I don't think that. Um, you know, other than like Caitlin Olson on The Mick and uh, It's Always Sunny, two shows that I actually adore, and I do think she's doing different things on. But I can't think of any precedent for an actor being the lead of a show, two shows simultaneously airing. No, I can't it's think little, of another. A little trivia question for the mm. for the for the fans out there. I mm. but but it, it should be. Uh, I'm curious. Something else that you did uh, differently this season is that you have you use different opening title music with with every episode. Um, can you talk a little bit? And you you mentioned earlier the Perfect Strangers theme going with the uh, the Perfect Strangers episode, which was. Uh, Made me very happy. Also, <laughs> also, kudos for calling that episode. Don't be ridiculous. Thank you for doing oh, that. Thanks. Also, um, but huh. how did you decide? How did you come to the idea of let's let's have different music and and is the music? I suspect it's intended to signal something to the viewer. Yeah. Um, well, there 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 was a there there's a as are all things in television. There's an there's an artsy fartsy answer and a pragmatic answer. And in this fact, in this case, they went hand in hand, which was. The, the pragmatic answer is we felt like coming into the third and final season of the show that we had to do something different with the opening titles because we changed them between seasons one and seasons two, and it would just be weird if, like, season one is different than seasons two and three. So we, so we knew we had to do something different, and then the pragmatic reality was there was no money to do a new opening title sequence. Um, mm. We did two less episodes. We knew, like, it was... And that was great for money HBO, reasons? That, well, that we just didn't have it in the budget to generate a new the, the, those opening title sequences, you know, both like both season one and season two were costly. As is the you know, as is securing the music rights for for mm-hmm. a theme song, et cetera. Um, and so, um, so it was like you can't afford to do a new one. It was like, how do we do a new one with without spending any money? And um, so I started to think about the music, and I just said. Ultimately, our goal here is to do something different, but also make it so that the audience doesn't fast forward through the opening titles. Like I do, I watch the Game of Thrones opening titles every yeah. week because something changes. Yeah. But, you know, um, but there are, other, um, there are other shows that I love that I'm like, I don't, need to, I don't need to see the opening title sequence again. So we thought of it as an overture. And so the idea of basically like you're all sitting in your seats, the show, the, the lights have dimmed, and now you're going to listen to select pieces of music from the 
from the musical that is about to be performed for you. And we're going to take you through, like, when you're a Jet and Maria and all of it, you know, just little snippets. And then the curtains will part and West Side Story will begin. And I, I was like, oh, this gives us an opportunity to play, like, something thematic to the episode that's going to come. But but then the artsy-fartsy part is, and then it actually has the effect of transforming the images that you're seeing that you've already kind of locked in on from season two. But it's like you have an entirely different emotional reaction to seeing the Perfect Strangers theme play over those images as you do Personal Jesus or any of the other songs that, that we use throughout the season. And I just thought, like, they might not all work. It is an, it is an experiment. But, man, I, I, that's really interesting to me. And when shows like The Wire, which is, you know, one of my favorite shows, if not my favorite show of all time, they they change the theme music every year. Um, same same song, different cover. Um, I just found it immensely cool and impactful. Mm. So you mentioned um, you mentioned budget, and I was curious, you know, what your biggest production indulgence was this season. What was your kind of swing for the fences? Like this is the scene we have to, you know put put as much as we can into um i i think the the big indulgences happened in episode five you know which i don't want to spoil but i i think it's not a spoiler to say that the majority of it was filmed on a boat um uh and that is an incredibly costly and difficult thing especially because there are a lot of people on that boat and a lot of moving parts and it's it's really hard to control. And then, um, and then the first five minutes of the first episode, we had to, that, that we built that town. Wow. And it didn't, it it doesn't, it it was in Australia, but it didn't exist. And, you know, Mimi and, and Tom and our incredible production designer, uh, John Pano and our director, Jordan Jacobs, all scouted all around the Melbourne area to find something that felt like it was going to be of the, of the mid 19th century and could not find it. And then it was like, do, do we digitally create it? And it's like, I just hate that. Like, you know, even the best visual effects, you just know that that's not real. And so they built it. And so for five minutes of screen time, we spent a disproportionate amount of money, but, you know, hopefully it was worth it. It certainly, you know, um, it certainly felt worth it. And Mimi, I just think, did an incredible job of, of executing that sequence in that episode. So um, I was like, we, sh- we should spend the money on that. Right. Yeah, I thought it was just beautiful. I and haunting too. Yeah. <laughs> that song that you use. Beautiful and haunting, that's the leftover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and your how do you feel about taking the Game of Thrones slot this year? It's pretty big. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, the two shows have so many things in common. <laughs> Somebody apparently Justin and I were doing what well, uh, not apparently I know Justin and I were doing press but you know when you you do a lot of junketing and you're getting asked lots of different questions over the course of the day and you start to kind of forget what you said but someone just emailed me you know a quote from one of those interviews which was you know essentially we said the leftovers more dongs than game of thrones <laughs> and i was like oh god how punchy were we at that at that point in the interview but 
um, I guess I was probably not knowing how to answer the how do you feel about taking over Game of Thrones slot. It's like, so how do you feel about being there instead of the show that everybody cannot wait to see and wants to be there instead of you, and you're doing this little kind of depressing tone poem about what it's like to be human and there are no dragons in it. And it's like, you know, if the correct answer is if you love Game of Thrones, you're going to love The Leftovers. <laughs> it's really not true. It's really not true at all. <laughs> you mentioned earlier your interest in exploring questions of, of faith and, uh, you know, especially in this season, what looks like true belief to one person can very easily look like mental illness to somebody else. Um, and these are, you know, issues that uh, are of interest to you. Um, I don't know if you know what you're doing next now that The Leftovers is over with, but is this something you expect yourself to continue exploring in, in other projects? I, you know, the honest answer is I don't know. I, I definitely don't want to retread familiar ground just just because it feels familiar to me and um, and therefore less exciting and potentially redundant for the audience. And although it's slightly terrifying to move into territory that I'm less comfortable with, I feel like that's the space in which I can learn. And I think that most, inter- you know, the thing I'm most interested in for whatever my next project is is who am I going to be partnering with? Because I feel like you know, the experience that I had with JJ was entirely different than the experience that I had with Carlton, but I learned from, from both of those collaborators, and I learned an incredible amount from Tom. And then when you are partnering with someone, you know, you are making something together versus making something on your own, and hopefully they're unlocking a different part of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the overlap of the Venn diagram, there's always going to be, you know, these these larger existential questions that interest me as a storyteller, but there's other stuff that I'm interested in exploring that, um, again, is scary to me. But I also, and this is just me for me, I I never tell anybody else what I expect of them or what kind of stories that they should be telling. And I think that there's a lot of space for, you know, what I would call escapist storytelling. But I think it will be impossible for me to do my next project and not talk about what's happening in the world right now. Mm. Because, you know, what's happening in the world right now is crazier than anything I could ever pitch on The Leftovers. Um, I just feel like um, whatever your political affiliation is, uh, the the experience that we had in our liberal enclaves on the coasts, like that space of I am going to go celebrate on on the night of November 8th, we're ordering pizzas, we're having wine, we are, you know, we're going to keep the White House. And within 40 minutes, people were weeping, not crying, but weeping. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the leftovers. I mean, the world just mm-hmm. changed that fast. Um, like, I, I don't know how how it's possible to not write about that. It's right. just too fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the way, as you just said, like the, the leftovers – it is exploring that idea of like when something traumatic happens, how do you how do you cope with it when something's snatched away from you like that? And it is obviously that's not what your intent was to comment on when you were making this season. But uh, psychologically, it, it it you're kind of watching it from that viewpoint at, at this point. Just to just to piggyback on, on what you just said, you know, it's only it's only traumatic for me. You know, there's a right. large portion of the country and the world that was celebrating at that moment. I mean, right. they were popping vodka in Russia for sure. So, I mean, so that idea of like, oh, everybody is feeling like me. That was one of the things that Tom and I talked about in The Leftovers, which is for some people, the departure is the greatest thing that ever happened because Mm -hmm. some asshole who was making their life miserable has just popped out of existence. 
and uh, so you can't. Um, you we should be looking. We should be looking at that story too. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think the idea that I was living in a bubble and now my bubble has burst, and I'm less angry at at uh, uh, the people who are in opposition to me, and more interested in how it how I came to a place of being so blind to the to the world that as it really existed. Um, and I want to I want to explore that idea. I don't know how to, but um, mm-hmm. you know. And and then of course my next show will be like you know farty pants and the dog, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know they're, they're, it's like a buddy cop show, uh, and uh, you'll be like where are all those grandiose themes you were talking about? I love they're there, they're there. You just have to look hard. Well, it certainly is. Uh, uh, I don't know that there's ever really been a show quite like this, and. Um, I you know when I try to recommend it to people, one of the things they, that they ask me is, "Isn't that a, isn't that show depressing?" And I have to say, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of the time it is because you know what one percent of the po- entire population of the world has mysteriously disappeared, and they never give you an explanation for why. So, like by its very nature, there's a certain element of that. But it's like I I, I always thought of it as like this is the uh, this is the grief chamber. That you that you willingly enter for like an hour every week when the show is on, and I think that's therapeutic. You know, like I it like I know feel, people like yeah. avoid it feels that. Feels cathartic. Yeah, I would yeah. Say. To they me, avoid that, that that kind I, of thing energizes me as a viewer in a way, like it, because well, it is therapeutic and cathartic to watch, even if it's sad. Like to me, that's not a turnoff. Right. There's something about seeing grief and you know the things you fear the most kind of faced and expressed that is very powerful. Yeah. And. Yeah. I think the show think you does guys it so would, well. Do you think you guys would watch the show if you didn't have to? I mean, if it wasn't your job to? Like, I would. I mean, Absolutely. I, Definitely. I, I do think, you know, here's a little advice for you, Matt, which is, you know, in, in the course of trying to recommend the show, here's what I do, is I basically, I say to people, it's not for you. And they go, what? <laughs> and I'm like, you, you know, you, 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 it's not for you. The leftovers isn't for you. you I, I just don't, I, I don't think you can handle it. You're and trolling them. Fucking, and then they fucking watch it. <laughs> I'll show you. Yeah. That's good. Thank you so much, Damon. It's, this is really wonderful having you on. Yeah, thank you so much Same for giving me so much time. I, uh, I appreciate all your guys' time, and I, I look forward to, uh, to hearing your thoughts once the, uh, once the finale is aired so that I can reveal nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Sounds like a plan. Excellent. All right. yes, we'll have a follow-up yeah. conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Damon. Thank Deal. you. Okay, right. bye, guys. Bye. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.